You're listening to Out of the Box Podcast with Rosie Tran. I'm here today with a very special guest. He's a national touring comedian and a good friend of mine for many years, Yoshi Obayashi. Yoshi, how are you? I'm good. Isn't that deceiving, though? <laughs> national touring? International. International touring comedian. <laughs> that's that's um, that's very nasty, but that's an exaggeration. Russell Peters, internationally touring stand-up comedian. Okay, you're an internationally touring comedian. He's an internationally successful touring comedian. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's accurate. <laughs> okay. Um, so you've been touring, though, recently with Santa, but also you've taken some time off, or I guess concurrently, to be promoting Illegal Magazine, which I think is awesome. Why don't you tell me a little bit about Illegal? Okay. So I think six or seven, maybe eight years ago when I was touring with our mutual friend Jason Rouse. Mm-hmm. He's a very funny Canadian comic. And... Um, for people who are familiar with me and my life, I do very edgy material, and sometimes it's not very compatible with the most audiences. <laughs> okay. So, just so you know, as a side note, I think edgy is an understatement. Um, from our time together, you've hidden in a trash can to avoid being beaten up. You've yeah, East, <laughs> East Ella, yeah. You've um. I saw you do a joke that I thought was very funny in the car, but you do use the N word, and it, yeah, it got nuclear, <laughs> got dead silent. So you're very, very funny, but your material does sometimes go over the edge, right? Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think um, how would I explain it? It's it's dirty material, but. Um, Whoa, let's not just say dirty material. Some of the material, I think, is edgy as far as racial and also thought-provoking. You make people think, and I think sometimes that's a little bit too much for comedy. <laughs> no, but I think um, it's too simple to say dirty material because we you know, we were both friends with Jim Norton. I guess he does edgy and dirty material, materials, but to me, it's three very thought-provoking, and it's very well-crafted jokes, you know, mm-hmm. and David Taylor's another one, but I I just like... I think I do way better on podcasts, you know, and I think it's people know that you're being very honest about something and not afraid to talk about certain subject matter. And, you know, to me, dirty materials are basically unpleasant idea or ideas that people don't want to think about. And people not are, just sexual in nature. No, yeah, yeah. It just they're just certain – they're maybe comfortable with a certain idea or the way uh, how people should live. And it's a similar kind of thinking that led me to – um, daily working and living with and uh, talking with uh, people who does drugs because I think some of the solution with the drug problem crisis um, it's out of the box like just like your podcast <laughs> out of the box thinking but um, I think people are just afraid even supporting idea that is actually um, empirical evidence would tell you that it works but they just want to not be seeing bad person or like supporting drugs somebody condoning drug use so we perpetuate these um, behaviors and ideas uh, knowing they're bad but they're people just afraid and this is a this is not a drug thing only they just anyone doing comedy anywhere in the world knows that um, people are sensitive but you know just well, before we move on, yeah. I, I do want to talk about Chasing the Scream um, and also talk about Illegal because that, you know, that's why I invited you on because I wanted to talk about the drug, fake drug wars, <laughs> failed drug wars. But um, Yan Ari, I, I hope I'm pronouncing his name. He really changed my mind about uh, drug and drug policies, Well, mo- mostly in the nature of uh, drug use and things like that. And uh, interesting enough, I never heard of him until... Either you call me or text me and told me you should check out this person, Ted. And he really changed my life. And after that, I read his book. And what was interesting last, I don't know, year and a half, two years since when he recommended me his books, I met some other people in the books, you know. And, so um, the people he talked about. Talk about in places that he visited because, I, you know, he spent, I don't know how many years, but he traveled all over the world, uh, Portugal, Vancouver, Canada, um, England, Every, tons of places in the United States, but um, there was. I'm still learning every single day something interesting about um, this drug wars and addiction. And you know, I'm going to tell you something right now. It's going to devastate you right now. Um, so, fentanyl. 
originally was used for people with cancer and burn victim and just people in severe pain. They're in incredible agony. So you use very minute amount to help you with your pain. And it's a very popular drug right now. Um, tiny, I'm, I'm telling you, tiny bit around the size of nose of FDR's face on a Tencent coin, you know, it's, it's enough to kill people, you know, so mm-hmm. this is very powerful. So, of course, what's the consequence of having drugs like that, you know? And this is the part I don't think you're going to like, but there's been tons of uh, police dogs getting killed because they will go places with those drugs. Yeah, and they get the residue on their nose. They're dead. Yeah. Yeah, there's, you know, maybe you have Narcan, but it's, it's, it's um, I didn't, and this is something I didn't know until seven, ten, seven to 10 days ago. You know. Well, let's talk about some of the concepts concepts mm. in his book, just so the listeners know what we're referencing. If they haven't read that wonderful book, terrific book, by and the way. Also, if they haven't, and before we get into what you're doing with the legal magazine, by the way, the re- I didn't text it to you. What happened was you were in a medical research. <laughs> Andrew and I went to go visit you, and you started. You were talking about what you were doing with Illegal Magazine and some. Oh, is that how the conversation started? Correct. And you mentioned something that was incorrect. You said something about addiction. I can't remember what you said, but I said, Yoshi, that's not right. And you said, well, I'm not an expert. I don't know. Um, I think you, it, it, it was you a- were under the belief that addiction is a chemical, purely chemical. Um, I believe that was a partly uh, big factor. But there's other school of thought like... Um, early childhood trauma and things like yes. that. Yeah. And lack of coping skills, etc. Coping skills, yeah. yeah. So um, then I had read the book and was into some of the stuff. He, his rat testing that he had done. That was a professor in Vancouver, Canada, which yeah. Bruce Alexander, I think if I remember right. So then I thought, Yoshi, that's wrong, but yeah. I didn't have all the information at the tip of my tongue sure. to share it with you. So later when I got home that day, I texted you the article and the information about his book. And I, when I saw the tech conference thing, it just... It's one of those things like, it's like, a, you know, you of course, this is something you know, like, whoever you were dating, there's times you had a gut feeling they're cheating. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but you don't have evidence. But you have this suspicious gut feeling that tells you. Something's up, right? Something's up. And I just thought, I always had this suspicious gut feeling about the way governments approaching drug problems, the way people have been treated. I didn't have empirical or educational background to say this doesn't. I I just that this this doesn't seem right, but I don't have anything to back it up. And when I listened to a young Ari talk, Hari or whatever how you pronounce his name talked about at TED conference, it just like wow, it was crystal clear. And I was just I was shocked that it the information was given to me through you because you're complete opposite from even. Drug addict, you know, just you don't, you have no addiction. So, you know, so what I, mean? I can't have information. No, no, you have no, but I always thought if I was give most of the time when I'm giving these kinds of information, it's usually someone who are close family member with addiction or them themselves, addicts, or work in government or uh, certain agency, you know. So, I don't know if I watched it right away, but my impression, like, well, why, what would Rosie know? <laughs> She's so clean cut. Oh, great, thanks. What the, the fuck would Ro- Rosie know? No, but I mean, you know, like, <laughs> usually when I hear, because I have alcoholic in my family, when I talk about them, it's usually like someone who are alcoholic or they have a family member's alcoholic. And when I met your family, every family had a problem. But when I saw your family, like, I just, there's no addiction problem there. You so know? let me clarify. So I actually got heavily into the addiction world. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember this wonderful room we used to do together, yeah. the thrift store comedy show in Orange, uh, County. Orange County. Yeah. So for those of you listening, we performed there over 15, 10, 15 years ago. It was a thrift store, literally a thrift store. And they had AA meetings before. It was a wonderful room. I really, one of my favorite rooms. Wonderful room. People were, it was NA and AA rooms. Yeah. So, um, one of the reasons I'm so interested in addiction is because, um, my high school boyfriend was a drug addict and alcoholic, and that's right. You did tell me. Sorry, I forgot. Yeah, so I did. But yeah. I after performing at the thrift store, so sometimes I would come to the AA meetings a little bit early before the show, and I would sit and listen. Sure. And I would also listen. Um, and I also perform quite a bit on the NA circuit, which is Narcotics Anonymous. Um, we have a mutual friend. Um, who ran some shows. Eddie Jarvis used to do a show sure. in NA rooms, and also. Um, 
some of our other friends. Why am I forgetting Plummer's name? The guy who ran the show. Terry. Terry, yes. <laughs> Wonderful guy. He moved to Thailand, married a, a Thai girl, looks very, very happy. You yeah, know. very happy. Yeah. So some of the early comedy shows that I got involved with were Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous rooms yeah and i spoke to a lot of the people involved there a lot of the recovering addicts yeah um you know i have performed in those type of venues for over 10 plus years so can i stop you for a second yeah i turn 49 next month Uh oh. <laughs> I, i'm so old sometimes i forget something you know like every generation i think about 18 years but i'm at the age where you know, there's certain people you used to see all the time. You stop seeing them. But you do certain rooms and you forget. Like Certain comedians, yeah. Yeah. So, like, after a while, you used to like, wait. It almost seemed like it was somebody else's life, you know? Like, when people bring it up, I remember clearly. But, yeah. Well, you forgot it till I brought it up. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't been to that room in, like, at this point, over 10 years. I, I don't think imagine. it exists anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but it was... Bob Perkel also runs some NA rooms. I don't know if you know Bob. I remember yeah. him. Yeah. And um, I like. I used to love going. Well, it was easier back then because gas was cheaper to drive around <laughs> there too. But there was. I liked it because there was a sense of like friendship and intimacy to that room, you know. And they do their thing, and it's very difficult and they're extremely honest people, you know, cause you can't, it's hard to do AA meeting, not being honest. And after that, our job was to make some, give them some little bit of relief, you know? Correct. But not only that, but a lot of people in those rooms, NAAA were very judgment free because they're either at their rock bottom or have been through rock bottom or yeah. have been through something really. Yeah. So it's hard, you know, it's hard, even if you're doing a joke with the N word or a joke about rape, it's really hard for them to judge you harshly Yeah. because they're coming from an environment of coming clean, being honest and Hey, really looking at themselves. That's what they try to accomplish in AANA sure. is looking at yourself. Hey, where did I mess up? How can I fix my life? Right. Well, first of all, I do, I do, I do use all those words, and there's I can't, I can't imagine a show where I have not used any of those racist or uh, homophobic, whatever. Um, but I, my belief is, you don't, you don't, you just don't say those words for no reason. There have to be reason within a context, you know. And one thing I learned over the years, and this is one of the advantage of being complete failure during stand-up. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I wouldn't say that, but <laughs> you're not afraid to give ideas that is uh, toxic to someone, or idea that's just too foreign, or make people uncomfortable. Um, I'm kind of immune to that. When people give me dirty look for suggesting idea, that idea is not conventional. You know, like whether it's drug injection rooms or when I was going to Evergreen State College, which is a hotbed of PC and this crazy movement in college where. You know, people are trying to silence you for having different kind of opinions, you know. But I'm I'm pretty immune to it at this point, you know. Because I know at the end of the day, I'm going to sleep that night. Next day is another well, day. Well, also, you, I think you're taking it as free speech. You're wanting to express certain opinions, whereas you don't do those things in real life. You know, mm -mm. you talk about rape. I don't think you have raped anyone, to my knowledge. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so... um I think, you know, it's very hard for people to separate speech and, and actions. And I think that's if any, anyone who knows you knows that your material is definitely an aspect of your personality yeah. as far as your thinking, but not you wouldn't act on any. Of Here, here's an example like the, the rape thing you were talking about. Um, I haven't spoken to him. We're going to be got fine. But David Cho, the famous painter, got in trouble for uh, making up a story on his podcast like four or five years ago. Basically, masseuse was giving him massage. And based on her way she blinked her eyes, he, he claimed she said yes. So he, anyway, he got in trouble because he basically put his dick in her mouth, mm -hmm. you know, made up story. So he got in trouble for that. Um you and I were both big fan of Game of Thrones. And season three or four or five, I don't remember which season, but main character Sansa, she was getting raped by her newlywed husband, Ramsey Bolton. And it was a very controversial episode on HBO because it, it was rape. And I'm not going to lie, when I saw that scene, I laugh. The reason I laugh, there's a third character, uh, Theon Greyjoy. He was forced to watch Ramsey rape his sister or half-sister or 
sister by convenience. And instead of presenting how horrible it is that she's getting raped, the camera panned into Theon's face. And even in the most terrible thing that's happening to her, they still have to get man's opinion on what's going on. <laughs> like, why do you have to show Theon's face? Does that make sense to you? I'm not laughing about the rape. This thing's happening to her. So if you want to portray how horrible you rape is, you should keep the, the camera on her face and how painful it is, how terrible this thing is. And it's a crime against her. And we should be thinking about what's going through her, not Theon's face. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm not too smart. <laughs> I know the showrunners are smart. The script writers are smart. But to me, I laugh because, my God, this is... This is a horrible thing's happening to her. She's the main character. She's but, losing her But depending to her, his yeah. sapphire, and I'm sure Theon's very sad, but inversely, Theon, in like a, one year before to that episode, got his dick cut off. Imagine in that scene, while they're cutting his dick, if the camera panned to a woman's face, okay, maybe she's sad, but you cannot, <laughs> you cannot convince me. I don't care if you put... Uh, <laughs> I don't care if you pan to Mother Teresa's face. <laughs> she would never know what it is to have their dick cut off, right? Does that make sense to you? Oh, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, so like, that's why I, I just think, like, I, I, I'm not laughing at the rape, but this absurdity how people talk, people, uh, I, I just have seen, when I see stuff like that, like, it's so fucking absurd. My, my, I don't know how to explain it, except I laugh like, what? We don't give a shit about why Theon think is horrible. He's not getting raped. Okay. This and mother, why would you pant Mother Teresa's face if he's getting his dick cut off? Right? So does that make sense? But whereas Dave got in trouble because he have complete disregard for anyone and put his dick in somebody's mouth thinking that's funny. I think it's funny that he think that was funny. You see? So... You're saying there's a distinction between material and actions in real life. I, and then and, and why I'm presenting something that is absurdity in the world. And these days, people are afraid to have this discussion. And I think when you could laugh at something, it's a defiance. But I'm, I, um, I'm socially aware of what's going on. But I, I think people, maybe they don't understand comedy or um, well, they, also- don't re- they don't really think too hard because everybody, everyone laughs. So they think they understand comedy. But here's the thing: Nazis used to burn Jews. Think it's a that's a funny thing. It doesn't make them a hilarious people, you know. It understanding comedy it takes a little bit of nuanced thinking and experience. And I I think although I don't have a success in the business, I think I understand comedy better than average person who get upset over jokes. Well, also there's different layers of mm-hmm. comedy, and we're getting sidetracked because I really want to yeah. talk about illegal magazines. Yeah, but, we will. But um. I think there's different levels of comedy. So mm-hmm. that's something, too, that I think a lot of people, you know, why is it that in music, you have country music, rock music, alternative music, classical music, but in comedy, they just say comedy. So that's not true. There's different yeah. types of comedy. There's slapstick comedy. There's people that use innuendo. Sure. There's people that do storytelling. No one say, let's. most people don't say, let's go listen to music tonight. They say, let's go specific person like Rihanna Correct. or... Hey, I want to go listen to Rihanna. I'm a fan of pop music. Yeah. So, but why is it in comedy that when you go online to iTunes, when you go look, it just says comedy. <laughs> so there's different yeah. levels of comedy. So when you say, I think the average person, there's, you know, there's some nuance to it. You need to understand references. Yeah. You need to understand puns. You're talking about the sophisticated comedy audience. The average Joe who goes to see Joe Blow at the comedy club sure. might not have any understanding. They, you know, maybe they like a physical comic or they like someone sure. that makes silly faces. You know, my parents are very unsophisticated com- comedy consumers. Right. I took invited them. I'm to- not saying they don't have a right to complain, but if you never watch baseball, football, and you go to the game, you say, "What the fuck is this?" <laughs> or complaining. Well, it's not the athlete's fault. It's your fault for not knowing what's going on. And sometimes when they say, when I say something edgy and most of the people laugh, but there's one or two people get mad and say, why don't you something funnier? Why am I responsible for your stupidity? <laughs> but why am I responsible for your inability to see nuanced things? It's not my fucking fault. You know, if you go to an Indian restaurant and you don't like spicy food, whose fucking fault is that? It's yours. <laughs> you know, what are fucking babies? When you have adults and they have a different opinion, sometimes people get angry, but that's, that's being adult, isn't it? You're conversing somebody with different opinion. You could still respect that person, but um, it's not uh, being angry or offended. Um, 
I don't. First of all, I don't give a fuck about that. <laughs> but two, that happens sometimes when you have a grown ass adult and you have a different opinions. Look at scientists. What is their job? There's some theory that everybody revere and respect it. A sci- new scientists come and destroy that theory and have a new solution. It's not a disrespect. That's part of the business. That's part of the nature of oh, the comedy. Oh, Yoshi, you know? I totally know what you're talking about. I just dealt with this with Esther Koo. I yeah. know you know about this. I called you that day it happened where Esther and I posted a video online called How to Get an Asian Girlfriend. It was a yeah. very silly girlfriend. I mean, excuse me, uh, clip. Yeah. And we got, you know, I was getting nonstop hate tweets saying that I was disrespecting Asian women and and facilitating yeah. you know the white male fantasy of asian women and i was caused you know one woman even tweeted that i contributed to murder because there was some chinese girl that was kidnapped and murdered by a white male and she said that my type of thinking i mean the video it was a 30 second clip it was very silly in addition it's, to that, it's a stupid conversation because if i say something positive and people become millionaires do i get benefit of that why am I? Resp- I why don't? How come I don't get credit if I say something positive? But if I say something that they negative, deem, yeah. they deem con- <laughs> negative, that I uh, get all the backlash, right? Uh, that I'm responsible that they don't. They don't believe in free will. People still make dis- decisions, you know. And uh, millions of people watch pornography, and uh, sometimes these guys who ended up being rapists, they blame pornography. But what about all the million, uh, 999,099 person that didn't rape? You know, it's. I expect people to take responsibility for their lives, you know. Well, and also, why am I responsible for some woman's murder that I don't even know? Yeah. Because I posted a clip. By the way, the clip was very, very silly. We said, you know, Asian girls like guys that clip their toenails. It was very, very silly. And the backlash was insane. In addition to that, you know, Esther has had said very provocative things about, you know, race in the past. I've never said anything provocative. I'm not a provocative comedian. Yeah. Yet I was also being attacked so I think when you talk about people not being sophisticated to the comedy audience, I think in general, or comedy connoisseurs or whatever, I think in general people are very quick to judge without understanding something. Again, I have, they, they 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 lash out and um, I have no association with any negative racial things. Yet I was being told yeah. I'm a racist, I'm a murderer, all sorts of things. It's just a name calling. It's, it's I mean to me it's a white noise at this point, you know. But um, so you know when you're saying people are getting offended at you and offended by I, I think, don't yeah I don't care about. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a quick. I think the internet culture and the the Twitter culture, the social yeah. media culture has caused people to be very judgmental without taking time yeah. to understand things but i'm also like not asian american i'm asian with u.s citizenship i don't like people threatening because they usually don't follow through with it i don't like <laughs> okay i don't i don't i just it just it's just not a these asian guys attack you guys maybe some of this is legit but they're just fucking babies and here's the thing they act like asian men are emasculated whatever the thing they're do- they're talking about but here's the thing the guys who complain to you guys i got the feeling a lot of them if they were born ra- born and raised in Asia, they probably emasculated it over there too. <laughs> I think they're they're I think they're that kind of guys. And two, I know I'm not sensitive about that stuff because, to be fair, I was born in in Asia, so I grew up seeing Asian people in position of power. So I don't feel like marginalized because that's not my experience. And when I moved here, of course, white people dominated because white people worked hard to slay people and treat people like shit and. Th- <laughs> And this is this is they reap, reap they reap the benefit of doing terrible thing in the past, you know. But I never felt like them saying something that make me feel marginalized, you know. Like the the two character for Chinese for China is Middle Kingdom because China is the center of the universe, and it's that I don't know. I just never felt that way, and I also, didn't. But you also, know. the judgments are very harsh. Like you know, I got a lot of negative feedback saying that Esther and I were were hyper-sexualizing hyper and fetishizing Asian women. Well, I didn't get any benefit of this either. I grew up in the South, as you know, mm-hmm. in a majority white and black. You know, there was no Asians. So I didn't get any fetishization of Asian women. If anything, I was like a reject because Asian women were, they were marginalized, but not in a fetishization way, if that makes any sense. It makes sense. And I just talked to Esther a couple of days ago, and here's the thing. Um, I was like, where's the benefit of me being fetishized? I didn't get this growing up. <laughs> One of my favorite writers is a guy named Dono Ritchie, and um, very famous in Japan, a giant. During World War II, he was making a decision whether to go to Europe 
to learn a foreign language in Europe and become an intelligence officer there. He wasn't sure where to go, but he decided to go to Japan to visit for like a month. Well, that turned into like 45, 50 years. He's a giant man, foreigner living in Japan, understanding Japanese culture, and he is prescient when he talk about certain things. But one of the interesting things he said, when it comes to acting, Japanese women are far superior than Japanese male actors. Why is that? And um, I'm paraphrasing. I apologize if I'm not saying it clearly. He said, a Japanese women, like most Asian women in Asia, grew up in an environment where they don't want to say what they like because society is going to take that away. So the things you like, you pretend like you don't like. Things that you hate, you pretend like you like. So you have to play this kind of game. So you have to simulate certain emotion, even though you don't have them, for publicly... To save face or whatever. Save face. Yeah, yeah. And that is the essence of acting, according to uh, Dano, Dano Ritchie. And I think Asian women, grow, I'm, I'm generalizing, but you, they obviously there's more dead Asian women than alive ones right now since the beginning of the time. But I would imagine average Asian women in Asia living in a background where they were not encouraged to have opinion. They were not encouraged to express their pain and suffering. You know, So I think now that you're living in a free land, I don't see why she's not allowed. I'm not suggesting I agree everything Esther's saying, but I think she has a right to express those feelings. And I know her background. She got beat up quite a bit. And I I told her, I always thought I like Asian women to laugh really loud, and you laugh loud too. I just think it's almost like you're overcompensating for happy childhood and you're making up the years you didn't have a lot of chance to laugh, you know? And it's almost like laughter is a defiance. Who doesn't like laughter? Well, let me tell you, the dictatorial, dictator government in Asia, you know, you're supposed to be silent, obedient, not have a fucking opinion, things like that. So I look at the bigger picture and I think these guys get mad at some Asian women saying something like, I think they're just, I'm not just saying it because they're Asian, but they're little people. <laughs> they're little people, you know. And plus, if I may say so, most real Japanese guy don't give a fuck what Japanese women or Asian women what they say they never get mad what Asian women say because if you get mad you're basically saying they have anything important to say thanks Yoshi I'm just I'm being I'm being real with you you you're know? being real and it's it's funny um, and it's but like- I, I listen I'm a, I'm a I'm not a feminist but I just like I don't like to fuck with people I think people should be giving a fair share of freedom and that means being responsible. If you say something stupid, people get mad, but I still think you have a right to say. And frankly, you, Eichel, and Esther, I've never heard you guys say anything out of line because I'm busy saying even more outrageous. <laughs> who the hell who the hell am I to say something to get mad at someone, you know? Um, well, I saw... Lying, I don't like. Somebody lying about me or you guys, I get mad at that. But other than that, somebody come an asshole, I don't care. I, I saw it as a lot of these guys were hurt had been hurt in the past by asian women and they were lashing out at yeah. us because that's the only reason you would do something like that but we're totally getting sidetracked i want to talk about chasing the scream and but some of the i'm sure con- some of them are hurt but you know i'm sorry but fuck. some of the concepts yeah. um in that book and what you're doing with the legal magazine we're getting we got totally sidetracked one of the reasons i want to bring up some of the concepts is because they're not concepts that people in mainstream america have heard about drugs right so I want to discuss that. One of the concepts that he talks about is the drug wars being infiltrated by the government. Sure. Um, they're, addic- they're literally addicted to drug wars. Because of the money. Yes. And I used to live in Sweden, and they have a very tough stance in drugs. And my impression when I was living there that U.S. government put a lot of pressure on many of the countries of the world to follow similar kind of drug policies, you know. Denmark, on the other hand, is completely opposite. They just... I you know they're they're next to each other, but their attitude about drugs is so different. You know, I mean, it, we're the government is benefiting from the from drugs being illegal. Yes, I think so because um, anyone who watched The Wire knows that that to make the police department good is a, a rate of a, a, um, arrest and conviction, and arresting people for drugs are the easy win for them. Unlike going after these Wall Street. Investors from stealing billions of dollars. It's a very hard to get conviction for stuff like that. So you go after the easy target. So you look like you're doing real work. 
I'm not suggesting all cops are bad, but a lot of them, even the ones well, I'm... Well, their policy, it, the, it, the policy. Yeah, even the ones I'm friends with, they'll tell me, like, it's not working, but it's their job. So I'm not mad at them, but there is empirical evidence that the, diff, the policy in Europe, like places like Spain and Germany and places like that, Where and Switzerland, it's, it works. It's a, they have a, all a little different variation of it, but I, I just think... This is a health issue, and we have an almost medieval attitude about drug pol- uh, attitude about drugs, you know. And um, so, for the listeners uh-huh. listening, we're talking about the drug war, which was started by President Nixon. Oh, even earlier than that, in the um, chasing the screen. Oh God, I forgot the guy's name, but uh, the chasing the screen. The title comes from this guy, uh, Ashing- Asinger. He was a young boy, and one of his family members was an addict, and she, I think it was his aunt, if I remember right. And she was screaming because she can't use alcohol, drug, or whatever the problem was. And, and then it haunted him, haunted this guy who ended up working, one of the first person in charge of U.S. government going after drug users because it, it, it um, traumatized him as a young kid. He didn't understand what addiction was. And um, he... Uh, he really hurt millions of people because of that. Um, you know, there was a time um, cocaine was uh, a viable drug for problems, and many of the doctors uh, said uh, there's a humane um, way to deal with addiction, but he went after those doctors and made them lose their license, so they stopped speaking on behalf of uh, uh, smart drug policies, you know. And Asinger, Asinger, I can't remember, but he, he he was like head of the drug enforcement department. I don't know what they're called back in way back, but um, um, but ne- of course Nixon escal- escalated too because he knew how do you go against people who are against him, and what did they have in one thing in common? The inner city minorities and hippie white people. One thing, one of the major things in common was drugs. That you go after them, but um, even many of the Nixon's people that worked for him realized this is a disastrous policy that we went on the road and um i was hoping obama did something because you know half he's half black but um i get angry thinking all the presidents since the year i was born some of them are great but my general opinion of most of the presidents are scumbags because they really did very little um well trump has legalizing been, drugs trump you know? has mentioned the opioid addiction recently saying that it's a huge um issue because it affects a lot of his constituents that support him but there's still a complete lack of understanding of the research that has been done so one of the studies that uh we talked that yoshi and i talked about was after the vietnam war Mm -hmm. where they took you know the majority of vietnam vets experimented with um opioid usage because they were in pain when, when they went over to vietnam but not all of them became drug addicts. So that, when they came back, when they came back, so that, just imagine like if your grandmother hurt your back and she's taking opiates, and once her back surgery is done and she doesn't have any more por- uh, pain, uh, she will stop using opiate. Correct. So, so, so the chemical addiction part is removed because if it was a ke- purely chemical addiction, every single person that returned from Vietnam would become an addict. What what was noticed in these studies was that the people that became addicts were people who were isolated, people who had poor coping skills, people who had childhood trauma that was triggered. Yes. So not it's not a f- purely physical chemical addiction. There's people that were isolated and were not able to be kind of re-socialized and reintegrated into society who, right. where it became really, really bad. Yeah. You said it, you said exactly. And then... Um, a lot of people just think if you're an addict, if you're a drug addict, you're a bad person, you know... There's no hope. There's no hope. You're a horrible person. But there's ways to reintegrate people from the the chemical addiction is a very small proponent of the addiction issue. Right. And, you know, there are very many, there's many functional drug addicts, drug users. And my friend, Mr. Jorgen, he is the president of, um, in Copenhagen, drug use, Danish Drug Users Union. He's been heroin addict for 50 years. But if you saw him down the street, you just think like, nice Danish grandfather. Um, 
He's very functional. He has a full-time job. Helping so, how people did, so what are you doing with Illegal and how did you get involved? Just so people, people, in case people are like, what is Illegal Magazine? Is this for Mexican immigrants? What is this? <laughs> oh, so Illegal Magazine was started by a guy named Michael Olson. And if you just put Illegal Magazine and Vice, they have um, clips by Vice uh, several times. So what happened was he, he called himself social entrepreneur. So Michael Olson's Danish guy. He used to live in... Um, I believe in Romania, he used to help homeless kids and he doing social entrepreneur and figure out a solution to help those kids. And years later, when he was back in Copenhagen, he lived in this area, nice area now, but at the time, I guess, heavily drug use. But every morning, when he's walking in the building, the front entrance to their apartment, there will be used heroin um, needles, needles kind of, you know. And uh, because there's a light and uh, many of those public bathroom like train station, they have a black light. It's hard to see your vein. And they also play classical music, which addicts don't like to hear. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's like a drug addict repellent, I guess. <laughs> so one morning he was leaving the house early, if I remember right. He saw a guy trying to inject heroin and he started the guy. And uh, I was like, look, I'm not mad at you. It's just like, why do you come here and do it? And he basically explained to him it's because they don't have a very safe place to go to inject heroin, and he's homeless, and um, um, his place was a convenient place to use, you know. And I think related topic is if you're homeless, if you're a drug addict, you don't have a place to inject. So when you're injecting, you're not even bothering someone if the police see you, they arrest you. But, you know, once again... There's many functional drug addicts that inject heroin at home and they live their lives. And I think people see addicts in TV movies have certain ideas about them. So they're being dehumanized, but they don't realize like they're, they're scumbags, they're thieves. Yeah, they're there's not low lives. There's not even need to talk about them. Um, and we'll talk about Ann Livingston, a friend of mine in Vancouver, Canada, who is mentioned in uh, Chasing the Scream of a Vancouver because her and her husband, a boyfriend, but um, it was one of the first time in the world where addicts themselves got together as a group, started this political group, and ended up passing policies eventually led to drug injection rooms in Vancouver. Because usually somebody outside of drug addict tried to do something, but it was one of the first times, if not the first time, where in 1997, uh, some park in Vancouver, Stanley Park maybe, some park in Vancouver where these addicts decide that enough is enough, they they started this group, start talking to each other, figure out how to help each other not overdose. You know. So let me clarify what Yoshi's talking about for the listeners who are a little bit lost mm-hmm. of the podcast. You're advocating for a safe space, mm-hmm. and Illegal Magazine is advocating for a space, safe space for people to do drugs with a nurse or somebody else around that can monitor, and they're saying that, is that correct? Yeah, so Michael, Michael realized there's a need to help them, so he started this magazine where most of the articles are written by addicts or somebody who want to help addicts. I've written like three issues. And uh, it's illegal magazine. So the, the addicts are standing in the streets of Copenhagen, sell the magazine. Each magazine they sell, they keep about one third of that money, and t- they turn around and use the money to buy drugs or food or whatever they want to do. And that way, they don't have to commit crime, and they don't have to commit. Uh, they, don't, they don't have to prostitute themselves. And there was a, we started doing in London. So they sell dr- illegal magazine in London as well. My friend. Lewis Jensen is in charge of that, and I'm trying to do it in California. But I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not very good at organizing, and I don't know how to approach that problem because, you know, London and Copenhagen—it's a walking city. Most of the people don't have cars and they walk, so they're used to seeing people in the street, very much like New York City and some, I guess, some parts of Chicago and San Francisco, but. If you're not used to constantly walking down the street and interacting with people, which is Southern California, I don't I don't know how effective it is to try and sell those magazines. I haven't figured out yet. Uh, only other thing that I've done is illegal comedy show where I tried to sell the magazine after the show, and um, Mr. Cool helped me last summer. It was it, it did, uh, we had audience, but I didn't sell a lot of magazine, and 
I'm trying to help people more aware of what's going on overseas because I think if you tell people in the States, places like Lisbon, Portugal, where drugs are legal and their policy work, but even if you tell average Americans like Lisbon, Portugal, you might as well say it's Mars because, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Well, let's talk about that. Yeah. So you said their policy works. So someone listening who doesn't know anything about drug policy, doesn't know anything about yeah. our illegal drug wars, what does that mean, the policy works, for someone listening who is, like, totally clueless? Okay, so, so maybe... How would you describe effective drug policy? So my my um, my, my, my numbers might be wrong, exact dates. Yeah. But 15, 20 years ago, um, I think the biggest problem Portugal had at the time was heroin, so heroin overdose. And no amount of arresting these people stop it, you know? So... First of all, I would just like to say as a side note, arresting people doesn't work because what you're doing is you're criminalizing someone that has a health issue. Health issues. And you're sending them in jail and they're and not... And sometimes they're mentally ill as well. Mentally ill. Yeah. And they're and not They're not necessarily getting... Treatment. They're treatment. just going to jail. They're yeah. just getting locked up. So um, I don't know what makes something epidemic and pandemic. I think one means it just stay in one area. Other ones... It can spread to other places, but we're it's a crisis in Portugal 20 years ago. Um, and places like Manchester in UK and places like just heroin usage is very, very high in Europe as well. And like Berlin, I remember going to a Berlin train station. There's a lot of heroin at like 15, you know, probably still. So so anyway, they're having drug problem in Portugal. So whoever was the president at the time or prime minister said, OK, we need to deal with this problem. This is getting out of control. So. He or she, I can't remember who it was, said, we're going to get the smartest people in the country, people an expert in law, addiction problems, scientists, and we're going to let them talk to each other and have them... Uh, figure out what's fi- going on. <laughs> figure, out, figure out the solution. Figure out the solution. But th- this is the key part because people have done that before. But what this per- uh, politician... I apologize. I don't remember the person's name. This politician said... However, what we're going to do, once they figure out their suggestion for solution, it doesn't matter if you're liberal or I'm conservative or vice versa, we're going to enforce those rules, findings. So that's what they did. So what they did was... It doesn't matter to the politics. It just matters the facts. Yeah. So... Very practical. (laughs) So here's several things they suggest. For example, they they decriminalize... So... One, you could have up to a personal amount. I don't know how much that is, but they say you could have any drugs up to a personal amount. Obviously, you can't have 3,000 pounds of heroin in your house. <laughs> okay. <But laughs> personal what, use? Yeah, but whatever it is, personal amount, you're not going to get in trouble. Two, um, you're not going to jail. Three, um, public campaign to promote that this is like a medical problem. And, 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 and here's another thing. Interesting policy Let's say, um, <laughs> let's say you're a mechanic, Rosie, and you're an addict, and you lost your job because you you were a drug addict for a long time. You know, you you sh- you, you failed to show up for work or whatnot. Mm-hmm. What the government would do is they go to local ABC mechanic shop and say, "Look, if you're willing to take Rosie Tran as a mechanic back, <laughs> or it's a new place, okay, if you take her." We will pay half of her salary the first year. So the business is thinking they're taking calculated risk of finding talented and motivated. But two, if this person work out, they're getting 50% discount to this person. Mm-hmm. So it, it'll help them. It helped the government to find somebody who were addict but trying to do... Get their life back together. Back together yeah. and working and paying, become a paying... Uh, Contributing s- member. Whatever. Of society. Yeah. Yes. And I don't know the figure, but it, it's it, it's a pos- net positive. Um, if you have this place facility that allow you to inject heroin, then you don't have a heroin all over the city. They just go there, uh, especially because they're given safe place, clean place. If you overdose, um, there's somebody to there's help a you. Nurse or somebody and two, there. going to place talk to other drug is a big positive because if you're buying drugs from say. Um, drug dealer A and they've been told that his drugs are dangerous then they could talk to each other it's kind of like a, like a Yelp 
It's like a verbal Reddit. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Stay away from this guy, drug yeah. dealer A. He's very shady. So, um, that's well, that's another reason I think, I do think that drugs should be legalized is to control the quality and the content. Sure. Um, because right now people are using street drugs, which are mixed with all sorts of things, including you don't know what you're rat buying. poison right. and other things like that. So that's very, very dangerous. And I also think they should tax it. You know, why not? Why, yeah. why is this illegal thing being happening when we can tax drugs and get maybe use money for drug prevention from the taxes or use the money for schools or education? Sure. And when you legalize drugs, you create more problems. Like these are some other things to do. Mob, gangsters. Right. Because... If somebody break in your house, you're going to call the police. You're not going to get gone and go chase after them. Um, Depends on who you are, but yeah. But, whoever, <laughs> but for most most people, if you have a grocery store and somebody shoplift, they run out of there, chances are you're going to call the police and try to report. Well, if you're ordering illegal activities and if you're drugged and somebody rob you, you're not going to police. So you have to go send a message to the street and saying, I don't to- tolerate that. So... Because you make something illegal and they are not going to get the help from the police, they have to enforce severe consequence for that person. So that's one of the, another example of when you legalize, you create this violence. Well, let's look at the facts too, mm-hmm. okay? Because drug, you know, alcohol was illegal yes, in the U.S. Yeah. Prohibition. And what happened? There was underground speakeasies. There was the mob. There was a huge mob gangster activity around prohibition. As soon as we legalized it, I don't want to say all of the problems went away. Obviously, alcoholism is still an issue in America and other countries. You know who like prohibition? Government and uh, criminals. It benefit both of them for two different reasons. One is it gives them incredible amount of power to enforce and trying to arrest people. And two, for for criminals, when you profit enforce prohibition, price of those products go high, and, and the profit profitability is very high. So they don't like each other, but they are they need each other. Well, so let's just look at that. So that mm-hmm. happened in America. We legalized it. I don't want to say that there's no issues with alcohol. Obviously, there's alcoholism. Yeah. But all of those issues with underground crime rings and everything is gone. Yeah. It's completely gone. You don't need that anymore because it's legal. You can go to the liquor store. You can buy liquor. Some places it's illegal on Sundays, depending on if you're in a dry county. But And the- if you're selling uh, alcohol, you, you, you're not uh, beholden to public making healthy or safe Alcohol, you're already involved in illegal activities. You don't give a shit about product. <laughs> if drugs are legal, then they, they, if the regulations involved, the chances are you have a safer legal drug. Well, look at the alcohol that's out there. Yeah. You can't put cyanide in alcohol. There's the FDA yes. that regulates it. But you can put cyanide in people's cocaine, heroin, etc. because nobody's policing it. Nobody's monitoring it. Yeah. There is a such thing as, you know, I know you're more libertarian, but there is a such thing as positive government regulation. Okay, yes. Um, there's there's some things that they have to do. I agree. Um. <sighs> if you if you are the Anheuser-Busch company and you put cyanide in beer, you're going to get... Well, sick. why would anybody put cyanide to kill people, right? I mean, there's no... I'm giving an example. Yeah, so, yeah. for example, people put rat poison in cocaine and other things yeah, to use that dilute example. it. Yeah. Or, dilute or, it. or car phenotype is like they put animal tranquilization with phenotype on top of that. Yeah, yeah, just to make it a cheaper product and they can increase their profit margin. But alcohol, now that it's legal, you don't... You know, if you had illegal moonshine or whatever, maybe you could put some type of fluid in there. I'm just using side as an example. Yeah. To dilute the alcohol so you can get a higher profit margin. Right. And when you go to a grocery store or liquor store, uh, depends on the states in North America, um, you could be assured when you're buying alcohol, you don't have to worry about it. Cause Correct. Because it, it's, it's regulated. It, it's regulated and it's legal. And they have a and company can be sued if they produce a product that hurt Correct. So other but drug dealers do not. Other than alcohol, they're not beholden to that. Other other than alcohol poisoning, which you're drinking too much because you're a, you know either an alcoholic or an idiot right. or whatever. If the company puts something in there, they're legally liable. You can sue them. But a drug dealer on the street, because drugs are illegal, can yeah. can put whatever they want. Can they be sued? I mean, possibly, but I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah. So, so going back to illegal magazine, um, my friend Jonathan Wolf, he's a manager he used to wrote he was road manager for several comedy shows i did and i think second year i was hanging out with him doing the second tour in europe he told me when he was like 15 or 16 years old in northern denmark Jutland, 
I'm probably not saying it right. <laughs> J U T L N. That he was a pretty mid-level drug dealer when he was a kid. So he would hire adults selling drugs for him. And a couple years later, he finally got caught. So he they sent him to juvenile jail. And it's one of those goofy stuff in uh, Scandinavia. Where you can meet, leave middle midnight as long as you get back by 7 a.m. Okay. <laughs> but he was a drug dealer. And um, I didn't know that. So I even saw the article of him as a kid in the, like a juvenile detention for like like a year or two or whatever. But he told me about Michael Olson with the illegal magazine with their van parking at the rough neighborhood with the doctor and nurse, let them inject in the back of the uh, van, sell the magazine, make people aware that uh, these are your brother and sister, uncle and father, grandfather, daughter. Uh, it's a health issue. And then uh, after I interviewed Michael, I slowly got involved, you know, trying to get word out. And um, Why do you think there's such a demonization of drug addicts in this country? Be- I mean, obviously the drug war, but everyone... You know, with the opioid crisis, everyone knows someone who is an addict. Why do you think there's such a demonization? Well, that guy that I was talking about um, early on, even like public, you know, they used to put stuff like when before TV was widely available for everyone, they used to put commercial in front of uh, movies. And the government used to put those uh, where they lied about, you know, smoking marijuana will make you deranged. It'll make black guys rape white women, heroin. <laughs> you know, Chinese Americans are trying to uh, conquer Asian uh, white women through heroin. Um, there was all this, you know, people just don't talk about propaganda. There was all these kinds of lies the government made, and um, I, I, I think it took many years to people to rethink about that, and I think. You know, every day somebody's turning 18, they probably getting marijuana or something from a local dispensary. But I think the younger generation knows, you know, there's a lot of fucking lies about marijuana, you know? I like, think marijuana has been almost completely destigmatized in this com- country. The only people I know who have really, really negative viewpoints on marijuana are people who are really old fashioned. You know, it's been proven the help that it can provide for cancer and other things, medical marijuana, I think, and seizures and other things like that. So I think. In America, the policy is slowly following. As you know, many states have legalized a medical and recreational, and I think the federal is, yeah. is slowly coming around. I mean, I don't know. This administration pr- seems pretty anti-marijuana as far as um, some of Trump's appointees, but I think that the it, it's just like gay marriage. Okay, gay marriage, the public opinion surpassed the legal, and, and it became legal. Yeah, it takes time, doesn't it? It changed to make people think like what they've been raised to think. It's not true, you know. Um, but I think medical marijuana and marijuana in general has been completely destigmatized in America. It's the the dominoes are falling on marijuana, but it, heroin and and opioids and other things like that. I think I think it's going to take a while. Yes, it, it will take a while. And um, God, I wish I, I'm still googling trying to figure out that guy's name. Um, I think it will take time, but. Um, it's such a serious crime, and I think, you know, I, I, even this year, there's talk about possibly Philadelphia, San Francisco, and they're trying to pass in Seattle. They failed to pass by these drug injection rooms. The fact that we're even having this kind of conversation makes me think, you know, all things are possible, you know. And this is kind of unrelated thing because, you know, how much I love theaters, but I, I was in New York City recently. I rewatched. Angels in America, uh, Tony Kushner's masterpiece from 25 years ago. And I saw it in London. I saw it again in New York City. And if you haven't watched it, it's basically uh, Tony Kushner called a gay fantasia, you know. And a lot of it is like a story about how hopeless it seemed dealing with AIDS crisis, you know. Mm -hmm. But I remember, I'm old enough to remember like mid-80s, you hear this uh, strange disease in San Francisco area. People are dying. They were calling it a gay disease. And um, at the time, it seems like if you have AIDS, HIV, it's death sentence. You well, know? look at Magic Johnson. Yeah. When that happened, I remember watching that live uh, thing. I couldn't believe it because I love Magic, and I was just like... He's still kicking. <laughs> still ki- but at the time, I didn't understand because everybody was saying it's only gay people have it. you know, mm-hmm. And religious people just pounded on top of it 
say God's punishing them and all this nonsense, right? This is 2018. If I hear anybody with like Charlie Sheen saying he has HIV, um, uh, first of all, most people were not surprised <laughs> <laughs> with his lifestyle. Uh, in fact, they would be surprised if he doesn't have it. And two, <laughs> it's not death sentence if you take care of yourself. But you know what I mean? Like in span of 20, 20 25, maybe even 30 years. Policy and decisions and public Yeah, but at the time, yeah. it seemed like hopeless. And I'm I'm a comic because I can be incredibly negative and cynical. But if I, if I look at the big picture, you cannot be nothing but optimistic about the world. Uh, because if you look at the math and science statistic of what, how much the world have changed in terms of number of children dying from birth or people from dying from measles. Polio, whatever. Polio, yeah. yeah. If you look at the big picture, it's absolutely inconceivable if you're a smart person, you could look at the number and, and you, cannot, you, can't, you can't only be optimistic the big picture. Well, not just that, but I mean, if you're a person living in poverty in the United States of America, you have more than generations of extremely wealthy people. I'm living better, you know, I'm a middle-class lady. I'm living better than kings and queens of the 1600s. For sure. They didn't have running water. They didn't, you know... Dentist. Have, yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. So when we look at the past and, and innovation and technology, the majority of people, even people living in America in dire poverty, are living better than some of the royals of the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s. That, that is true. If you look at the big picture, I cannot help but be optimistic, but also that's intellectual. Intellectually, I'm right. Emotionally, it's a different <laughs> thing, right? Emotionally, because people say, I, I read, I, I don't know the number, but it's, it's the figure is something like one in three million, or one in three and a half million, or maybe one in four million chance of you getting a, attacked by a shark in the ocean. Now, it's such a big number that I don't have to worry. But if it's happening to you, that number does not give you any sort of comfort. Correct. <laughs> You're like, I'm still being attacked. I'm yeah, the one in yeah. one million. So if you're a black person with all this poverty and, and, and a terrible thing happened, you know, maybe they could be open-minded enough to uh, agree with me intellectually what I'm saying is true. But if it's happening to you, it's not a consolation, you know? So I got to balance those two things. Like, fact, but I also have uh, feelings too, you know? So I, ha I have to balance together. So the reason I give you all this example, people are dying and it is terrible, uh, everywhere, the fact that we're having these conversations, and um, I think we will have these rooms. We will have a better policy in this country. I was hoping it might be easier for someone like Trump to do it because his brother died from over um, alcoholism problem, you know. Mm -hmm. But um, it still is subject touchy subject. Money is touchy subject. Sex is a touchy subject. And um, money, drugs, and sex. Those three things are still taboo. Taboo. Bit, yeah. And uh, there's plenty of people who benefit from drug wars, you know, well, including the cartels if they make money because of it. They lose billions of dollars from Washington State, Colorado because they decriminalize marijuana. So, well, Yoshi, we got to wrap up, but um, how I totally agree with you. I think that the, you know, that some of these drug wars are targeting. The How much time have you done? We we're almost done. <laughs> that was fast. Uh, it's been an hour. <laughs> oh, can I then, then can I tell you quickly to show some of my love? If you ever go to Vancouver, Canada, please, please do not be afraid. Visit East Hastings. That is the center of the whole North American drug experiment with Insight. And my friend Ann Livingston and my friend Leslie Murray, uh, they're wonderful. Introduced me to Vandu, which is. Vancouver area network of drug users and that was created 20 years ago 21 years ago and Livingston and her boyfriend Bud Osborne and he's mentioning the chasing and scream um, so please go to the place and do not be afraid because I go there all the time so one my favorite place in Vancouver people are afraid to go to that area but I have no fear whatsoever and food is very cheap right next to the Chinatown and two uh, also like to dedicate to David Purchase, who was the guy in North America, Tacoma, Washington, where I used to live. He got in a car accident 30 years ago, used that uh, insurance money 
to provide free needles in downtown Tacoma, which was a really rough oh, area. Wonderful. And uh, he was wor worried that copy at the time will harass him. The police chief at the time, Tacoma, Washington, say, keep doing what you're doing. So Dave purchased, in my opinion, in addition to Bud and Leslie and Anne, and being a woman, women get no credit for doing hard work because a lot of people will ask three trips to Vancouver, Canada, telling me, yes, Bud was the figurehead face of that um, Van Du. You're like, uh, what about Anne? <laughs> but Anne, Anne did the, all the dirty work, continued to work hard, continued to go places in the United States like Ohio, give lecture on how to start a drug injection room. So, you know, she, she needs to get credit for that. So uh, Anne Livingston, she's, you know, she's great in Vancouver. David Purchase in Tacoma, Washington. Uh, Michael Olson, Yor Mr. Jorgen at the Drug Union at um, Denmark. Igo Gunderson at um, uh, Illegal Magazine. And uh, I'm working with Lewis Jensen in London. So um, anyone who has like, a, you know, if you want to donate or want to help me, because what, what I really need to do is I want to keep doing this illegal comedy show, places like Comedy Store, maybe with you and Sam Tripoli show me interest, maybe help him, but he's busy right now raise money and really the only way you get this room a lot of these cities in the country hate to say it I'll be blunt with you you kind of have to start illegally and put the pressure on the government and I think the most effective way is for me to have money find group of ladies who lost their daughters and sons to drug overtoes have them run it and when they have those illegal rooms and helping drug addicts with overdose problems, it put the government in a position like, okay, you're going to arrest these women who are not addicts, who who are helping, helping because help problem, yeah. if they had this facility, their kids would be alive. And let's be also be blunt, when when the blacks and Latino kids are getting killed by drug war, drug uh, selling drugs or drug overdose, most people don't give a shit about inner city. But now that we have a middle class White kids are getting killed. I think people are taking it serious. I'm being, I'm being real with you. And I think all of us, I'm sure 90% of the time, either you're a drug user or you know somebody or family member with drug issues, and we should start lying to ourselves, start treating this as a medical issue. You know. Well, for those of you who are listening who think that setting up a safe needle room or any of these things are actually enabling drug users or increasing the drug problem or accepting of a drug addiction problem, I would strongly advise you to check out some of the resources that Yoshi and I discussed. Chasing the Scream Chasing and why I seen Young Hari's TED experience and they provide empirical evidence. Scientific evidence. That it works. A lot yes. of people think, oh, well, if we provide needles and everything, we're just enabling drug users to become more addicted and use yeah. drugs and I want to help my kid or my son or my brother or my sister get off of drugs. I would say look at the evidence, look at the research, Yoshi and I are not just pulling something out of left field. It, you know, a lot of this is based on science and what works and what doesn't. And as yeah. Yoshi said, in Lisbon, Portugal, they've enacted this very wonderful drug policy. That's in Switzerland, they provide heroin, and you go to these places where they uh, give you when you go in the morning, they give you free heroin. You can't leave until you use it, so you can't take it with you. <laughs> okay. Or lunchtime or dinner. <laughs> the, the reason is when you're addict with drugs. You, when you run out of money, you either rob people, steal, or prostitute yourself, or what you try to do is you get new people addicted to drugs that they buy from you. With that money, you share half of it, some of it with that person, but use uh, some of the money to uh, use it on yourself. So you have an incentive trying to get new people addicted to it. Well, if you're getting free from the government, there's no need for you to go outside and get other people addicted to drugs. So it's a counterintuitive. The fact that you're giving you free does not mean to increase the drug use. It, actually, it does opposite. You know. So this is a hard part. Like uh, even the cops in the Portugal and cops in Vancouver. There's a mayor, conservative mayor that later changed uh, changed his opinion about Vandu drug injection room because Milton Freeman, the Nobel winning libertarian, some people even call conservative economists, been telling drug war caused more problem than than than. Uh, legalizing it because he grew up in Chicago Prohibition so um, I highly recommend if you're interested watch Young Harish TED conference speech but uh, places like in Europe it's working and they're doing a, they're treating a health issue you don't throw people with cancer so I don't think you should throw people with drug addiction in jail, into yeah. jail either um, last thing 
um, if I don't know when you're putting this up, but May 9th, I'll be Warburg Comedy Club in Copenhagen doing a comedy show there. And May 10th, Big Bang Club in Stockholm. Um, May 10th, also Power Comedy Club, two shows in Stockholm, May 10th. On May 11th, I'll be Oslo at Stand Up Lady Campen. I hope I'm saying it. So <laughs> 9, 10, 11, I'll be Denmark, Sweden, Oslo, but uh, I'll be in Denmark for five days. So I'm talking with a bunch of drug people from May 3rd. All right. And if you're interested in finding more about Yoshi, he's been a guest on the show before. Check out our website, outoftheboxpodcast.com. I'll have links to all of Yoshi's comedy, social media websites, and everything. As always, I'm on Twitter at Funny Rosie. Thanks for listening to Out of the Box Podcast. Thank you, Rosie.